You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Second Kings chapter 2. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. And we want to come to it, Lord, knowing that you're a God who speaks today. Just as you've spoken in the past, Lord, we want to hear your word and we want to receive it. And so, Lord, by the power of your spirit, Lord, give us open, formable, malleable hearts, Lord, that we would hear your word, that we would receive it, and Lord, that it would transform our lives. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You know, the Bible is filled with stories, isn't it, of the incredible things that God has done in the past. As we've been studying First Kings over the past few weeks, we've been looking at some of the amazing things that God did through the prophet Elijah. And I wonder how many of you are like me in the sense that when you read these things, you read about what God did in the past, these incredible works of God in generations gone by, you, you maybe sometimes have this thought to yourself where you say, does God still do those kinds of things today? Where is the God of Elijah today? And, and look, if you ask those kinds of questions, you wouldn't be the first to ask those kinds of questions. In fact, in our text today, we're going to see a person named Elisha, and he asked those exact same questions in his time, in his generation. He had heard about the great things that God had done in the past. And he wondered, he desired, he longed that God would do great things in his time, in his generation, even through his people at that time as well. And so what we're going to do as we study this passage, here's what we're going to see. We're going to see that the God of Elijah was with Elisha, and he will be with us as we carry the baton of God's work in our generation and point people to Jesus. Uh, what we're going to do, we've been doing this every week, I give you kind of a, a thesis statement or a thesis sentence, and then that becomes our outline for how we go through this passage. So I'd love it if you'd take that sentence, maybe take a photo of it with your phone, maybe write it down, memorize it. You'll know that's what we talked about at church. That's the passage and the message for us today. The God of Elijah was with Elisha, and he will will be with us as we carry the baton of God's work in our generation and point people to Jesus. So let's break that down as we study this passage. The God of Elijah was with Elisha. First of all, who are these people? Let me, let me bring you up to speed. Elijah and Elisha, they were both prophets. They were both prophets. Now, Elijah was the older prophet from the older generation. Elisha is now the younger prophet for the younger generation. The prophets in Israel at this time, they were kind of like the pastors of the people, whereas the priests served in the temple and, and took care of the sacrifices and making sure the incense was lit and, and having all of the things that needed to be done in the temple. The prophets were different. The prophets weren't centered around the temple. They were out amongst the people. They were speaking the word of God into the hearts and lives and ears of the people. They were the ones shepherding the hearts of the people towards God. And so the prophet Elijah, he had served during a very difficult time in Israel's history. But now, as we saw in our study last week, the time has come for Elijah's ministry and his time on earth to end. We read in, in 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 11. We looked at this last week, but we're going to kind of pick up in this place again and focus a little bit more. 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 11, it says, that after Elijah and his protege, Elisha, they've crossed the Jordan River. And they're standing there on the banks of the Jordan River, and Elijah is caught up and carried away by a whirlwind. Now, some people 
think, they have this idea that Elijah was carried away like he rode up to heaven in like a chariot of fire, right? Even, even uh, we have songs about that, right? Like swing low, sweet chariot coming for to carry me home. But I want you to notice this. If you read the text, Elijah didn't ride a chariot of fire up into heaven. What happened is the horses of fire and the chariots of fire, they came not for the purpose of carrying Elijah up. They came to separate Elijah and Elisha and Elijah, the older man, he was caught up in this whirlwind. It's like a small tornado that literally picked his body up off the ground and carried him away. And the reason why the chariots of fire and the, the, the horses of fire came was to separate these two men because they were too close together. And God only wanted Elijah, the older prophet, to be carried away in the whirlwind, not Elisha. So they had to separate them. Now, I want you to notice the reaction of Elisha to Elijah being caught and taken up in this whirlwind. Now, you might think he's been being prepared to become the next prophet to take over. What might he say when Elijah's removed from the scene? He might say, yay, I got a promotion. Now I'm like a real, legit, full-grown prophet. But that's not what he says. He doesn't say, yay, I got a promotion. Look at what he says in verse 12. Elisha saw it and he cried, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen, and he saw him no more. Elijah has been being trained, right, by Elisha, Elijah to take over the ministry when Elijah is gone and isn't there no more. But when Elijah's taken away, Elisha doesn't react, and he's not happy. He doesn't say, yay, I got promoted. Instead, no, he's sad. He's weeping. He's mourning. Why? Because his mentor, his friend, one of the greatest men who ever lived in the history of Israel has been taken away. This is a huge sense of loss for him personally and for the nation as a whole. But notice this strange phrase he says. Why does he say this? He says, the chariots of Israel and his horsemen. It's kind of a weird thing to say at a time like this, don't you think? Well, actually, if you understand that culture, the ancient culture, what he's saying here makes a lot of sense. And it's quite profound, really, because think about this. In ancient cultures, chariots and horsemen represented military might and military power. And most of the time, the strength of a nation was measured by how many chariots and how many horsemen they had. That's why it says in Psalm 20, for example, what we read in our call to worship, it says, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. See, chariots and horsemen, they represented the strength of a nation. It would be like us saying about the United States, saying the economy of the United States and its military. That's the essence of saying, you know, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And what Elisha is saying is, is actually quite profound. He's saying the true strength of our nation, the true strength of Israel is not our economy. It's not our military. The true strength of Israel was Elijah. It was this man of God who stood for the way of God, who called people back to God. That was the strength of our nation, and it is now gone. You see, what Elijah represented was the continued work of God in Israel and the continued presence of God in Israel, that God wasn't done with Israel. He was still pursuing them. That's what Elijah represented. And now, He's gone. He's been taken away. And there's this huge sense of loss. And there at the end of verse 12, it says this, Elijah took hold of his clothes and he tore them to pieces. Now listen, to tear your clothes, this is an expression in that culture and in the Middle East. 
of deep sorrow and deepest lament, right? You know, people back then, they didn't have a closet full of clothes like you do from like Old Navy and H&M, which are probably ripping and falling apart and you're going to throw them away next week anyway, right? Uh, no, back then you had maybe one or two pairs of clothes. They were very expensive. So really, I would think the equivalent of ripping your clothes like he did is to be like you taking your smartphone and throwing it on the asphalt to destroy it. Seriously, it, was, it was meant that you were very, very upset. Now listen, we've all probably experienced some sense of this feeling that Elisha had at different times and in different ways in our lives. You know, there are people who make such a big impact that when they're taken away, you wonder, how can I even continue? How can I even go on? You know, how, how will the world ever be the same? How is this okay that this person who is so important has been taken away? You know, from time to time, even in different areas of life and in ways, there, there are people who it's hard to imagine going on without them. You know, you think about what is football without Peyton Manning? What, what, is, what is basketball without Michael Jordan? What is the civil rights movement without Martin Luther King Jr.? On a spiritual level, we have people like Billy Graham, right? God used him in such an incredible way. We have people like Chuck Smith teaching through the Bible for 40 years. We have people like Ravi Zacharias, who we just lost in the last few months, right? This incredible evangelist going on to college campuses and, and bringing God's word to the intellectual level. And when these people are taken away, it feels like nothing can ever be the same again after that. It's such a huge loss for us personally and for the world. We wonder, how can that be a good thing? God used these people in such incredible ways, and now they're gone. And maybe there have been people like that in your own life, right? Mentors, pastors, leaders, the kind of people that you look to and lean upon, right? You look to them for guidance and direction. You lean upon them for strength. That's what Elijah was, both for Elisha personally and for the nation of Israel as a whole. He was this great figure who was like a pillar. He was a guiding light for an entire generation in the nation. You know, and sometimes what we ask, we ask this question, who will be the next Billy Graham, right? Will there ever be another one? Who will be the next Billy Graham? Who will be the next C.S. Lewis? But remember this. This is, this is nothing new with the people of God. How do you think people felt when Moses died? Who could ever fill those shoes, right? Moses. How do you think people felt when the apostles died, the ones who had walked with Jesus? When they were gone, there must have been this incredible sense of loss. Who could ever take their place? When Martin Luther died, or John Wesley, or, or Jonathan Edwards, right? It probably felt, when those people died, it probably felt like the strength of God's work in the world had died along with them. And that's exactly what Elisha was feeling there on the banks of the Jordan River when Elijah was caught up into heaven. And yet, friends, I want to remind you, even when Moses died, the presence and the work of God in the world continued, didn't it? Now listen, there would, there would never be another Moses. You could never replicate that. You would no one else could ever do what he did. But God raised up other people in their generations to carry on that torch, that work in the world. The same was true of the apostles. You could never replace them. 
And the same is true today. In every generation, those people had their time. They were called, raised up, equipped for their time. And in every generation, God calls and raises up new people to carry on his work. I want you to notice what Elisha does in verse 13, the first part. It says, he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him. Elijah's cloak, in some of your translations, it says his mantle. I like that word better because it, it just refers to this idea of carrying a weight of responsibility, this mantle that had fallen to the ground when the whirlwind had picked him up and carried his body away. Elijah's mantle, his cloak, it represented his anointing and his authority as a prophet. It was a symbol of his ministry and his calling from God. And Elijah sees the mantle of Elijah, they're lying on the ground, and he picks it up, and he puts it on his own shoulders. And then it says there at the end of verse 13, then Elisha went back and stood at the bank of the Jordan, verse 14, and he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him, and he struck the water, saying, and I want you to notice this question he asks, where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And he struck the water, and the water was parted at one side to the other, and Elisha went over. Do you understand what he did there and why he did that? Look in your Bibles, if you will, back up at verse 8 of this same chapter. 2 Kings 2, verse 8. Look at that verse, and here's what you'll see. Elijah had performed this exact same miracle where he took his mantle and he twisted it up like a towel in the locker room, right? And he snapped it on the water, and the water split in half, and they crossed over. Elijah had done that just a short time before this. And now Elisha takes up the mantle, and he goes, and he performs the same miracle of splitting the water. And look at what Elisha asks. He asks, where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? He's asking, will the God of Elijah be with me in the same way that he was with Elijah? And the answer is yes. God divides the river Jordan uh, for Elisha just as he did for Elijah. And that brings us to the, the second part of our sentence, which is this. The God of Elijah was with Elisha, and he will be with us as we carry the baton of God's work in our generation. See, what we're seeing here with Elijah and Elisha, what we're seeing is the passing on of God's work in the world from one generation to the next generation. You know, a few years ago, I ran my first half marathon race, and I showed up to run the race pretty early in the morning. And as I was preparing for the race, you know, just kind of milling around and, and stretching out, I ran into somebody I knew who was there also. And I was really surprised to see him because I knew that this person, he's not a distance runner. So I was like, what are you doing here? I asked him. And as it turned out, uh, at this half marathon, there were two options for running it. One was the traditional half marathon where you run the whole thing by yourself. But there was also a relay option for this half marathon where you would run the half marathon distance with a group of four or five people. And so that's why this friend of mine was there. He was running the relay portion. 
Now, all the runners in the relay portion, or all the runners, whether you're traditional or relay, we all started out at the same time. But of course, the runners who were in the relay, they held a baton in their hands. And when the race started, right, the gun goes off, the race starts. I'll tell you what, the racers running the relay race, they ran harder and they ran faster. Why? Because they knew they didn't have to run the whole distance. They just had to run the portion that was laid out for them to run. Right? And then they would get to their end of their race. They would hand over that baton. The next person would take the baton, and then they would run the portion that was marked out for them. Now, here's what's interesting about a relay race, is that in theory, a relay race, if you have enough people, it could potentially go on forever. Right? A single racer, a single runner can only run so far, right? Before you just fall over and die, right? Uh, you know, and so, you know, here I was running and just exhausted. And here these guys were running with endurance because they didn't have to run as far. They just had to run their section. If you have enough runners in a relay race, it could theoretically go on forever. It could cover so much distance. And a relay race is a great picture of God's continued work in the world from generation to generation. That's what we're seeing here with Elijah and with Elisha, the passing of the baton of God's work from one generation to the next. And just like in a relay race, the passing of the baton, it always includes two aspects, right? There are two kind of parts to the passing of the baton. On the one hand, the person carrying the baton has to hand it over and let it go. On the other hand, the person taking the baton has to take hold of it and they have to run with it, right? If, if either of those things don't happen, the race is over. Elijah, he had to let go of his mantle. Can you just imagine another version of this story in which Elijah says, no, I'm just going to cling to this and I'm going to carry it up with me into heaven, right? And it just, that's it, right? The mantle's gone. Can you imagine another version in which Elisha sees it lying there and he's like, nah, right? Like he just doesn't pick it up and put it on, right? Both things had to happen. There had to be a letting go. There had to be a taking up. In a relay race, again, if, if any runner refuses to do either of these things, to hand over and let go or to take up and run, then the race is over. It's done. In the same way, if there ever comes a generation that refuses to take up the mantle of the ministry and God's work in the world, Christianity's finished in a generation, if there ever comes a generation that refuses to let go and hand over and raise up the next generation, Christianity's finished in a generation. And guys, that's why it's so important. It's imperative. It's urgent that we do both of these things, you and me, that we take up the mantle of God's work in our time, in our generation, and that we be diligently raising up and training the next generation. And guys, let me just say this. Now is our time. We don't have to wait, right? Now is our time to take hold of the baton that is being stretched out to us. Will we take hold of it? Will we take hold of the baton of God's work in the world and run with it here in our generation? You know, here at Whitefields, this is so core to who we are. We talk about this a lot. We want to be a church that is actively engaged in the mission of God, both locally and abroad. And we want to do as much as we possibly can with what has been given to us in order to make disciples of Jesus Christ, in order to bring the love of God and the hope of the gospel to the world. 
Other generations had their time, didn't they? Other generations had their opportunity to run with it. Now is our time. Now is our opportunity. The baton is being stretched out to us. And the question is, will we take it? Will you take it? Will you run with it? Will you take up that mantle of God's work and put it on your shoulders in this generation? You know, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9, Paul the Apostle says something that always blows my mind, always surprises me. He says there this, for we are God's fellow workers. Now that word that's translated fellow workers, it can also be translated co-workers. It can be translated co-laborers. And the idea here is this, that God has called us to participate with him in his work. God has called us to be part, to participate, to do his work in the world. Now, that is an incredible thing if you think about it, because obviously God doesn't need us in order to do his work, right? He's not out there wringing his hands saying, oh, no, I'm not going to get stuff done if people don't help me out, right? He could easily do it by himself. And oftentimes, sometimes he does do things by himself without any uh, assistance at all, right? Think about this also. God could send angels. He has myriads, armies of angels. He could send them, and they would probably do the work more efficiently, more precisely than any of us ever could. Listen, for God to involve us in his work is a huge liability for him, isn't it? Right? That's a huge liability because we're slow and like we forget stuff and we say the wrong thing and we do the wrong thing and we mess stuff up and we cause problems. And yet God has chosen to involve us and use us to do his work in the world. Now, why in the world would he do that? Here's why. Because he's a father and we're his kids. You know, when, when, when my son was younger, I had this car. It wasn't in great shape. And so sometimes I had to go work on it in the garage, right? So I would tell my son, I'd be like, hey, why don't you come with me and you can help me work on my car? Now, I'm just going to be honest with you guys. Uh, his help wasn't really all that helpful because as you can imagine, five-year-olds don't know how to fix cars, right? So here he is, and he didn't know how to fix a car, and he would just be out there helping me, but his help, well, you know, basically was like, just make a mess of the tools, ask a lot of questions. When I needed him to hand me something, he's running around in the yard, you know, nowhere to be found. Having my son help me actually made the job take longer, and it made more work for me than if I had just done it myself. I could have done it faster and easier by myself. So why did I involve him? The reason I involved him was because I wasn't after efficiency. I was after intimacy. I wanted to spend time with him. Guys, listen, intimacy is built through shared experiences. Intimacy is built through shared experiences. Now listen, that's true in your marriage. It's true with your kids. It's true in any relationship. If you want to build intimacy, here's how to do it. Have shared experiences. And the reason God invites us into his work is because it builds intimacy between us and him. When you step out and do God's work, let's say by teaching a Sunday school class, by, by leading that community group, by giving to support the ministry, whether it's our radio outreach or missions around the world, whenever you participate in one of our local outreaches, if anytime you serve the Lord in any way, something happens between you and God. Something happens. And you know what happens is this. It forces you into a place of dependence, depending on him 
him in a way that you wouldn't have otherwise. It forces you to seek him. Lord, what do I say? Lord, what do I do? Lord, show me the way. I need your guidance. I need your direction. And as you do that, it builds intimacy between you and God because it draws you into the arms of your father because you need him in that moment. It builds intimacy, the shared experience. Guys, that's why we always repeat over and over here at Whitefields. We want to encourage every person in our church to do two things, to join a group and join a team. We want you in fellowship with each other, community with each other, and we want you to be serving, not because that's our way of getting things done, but because that's God's way of growing his kids. See, we get to be God's fellow workers. What a privilege. This baton has been passed to us. And the question for you is this. Will you take hold of that baton and run with it? Will you take up that mantle here and now in this generation, in this place? Every generation has their own story of the great things that God has done through them as they stepped out in faith and obedience and dependence upon the Holy Spirit. Our generation's story is being written right now, and it's being written through us. And all of you, I'm speaking to young, old, I'm speaking to you kids who are here today, I want you to know this. God wants to fill you with his spirit and he wants to use you in the world. And the question is this, will you take that baton? Will you take up that mantle? Will you say yes to walking with the Lord and carrying out his vision for your life, his calling upon you? Listen, if you do, then just as God was with, the God of Elijah was with Elisha, he will be with you also. Look at what it says in verse 14. Elijah, or Elisha, he stands on the banks of the Jordan River holding Elijah's mantle. And he asks this question. I love this question. He asks, where is the Lord, the God of Israel? Where is the Lord, the God of Israel? He's saying, where are you, Lord? You did mighty things in the past. You did mighty things with Elijah. Will you also do mighty things today? Will you do mighty things through us in our generation? Listen, that is a question that many of us ask as we read the Bible, and I think it's a very important question. It's a good question for us to ask. Where is the God of Elijah today? Where is the God who kept Elijah faithful when everyone else turned away? Where is the God who answered Elijah's prayers miraculously? Where is the God who, who raised the dead through Elijah? Where is the God who sent fire from heaven? Where is the God who ministered to Elijah and encouraged him when he was discouraged and depressed? Where is that God today. We could ask the same question about any of these other figures. Where is the God of Billy Graham today? Right? Charles Spurgeon, he says this, say not, where is Elijah? But rather, where is the Lord God of Elijah? Elijah is gone, but his God is not. Elijah has gone away, but Yahweh is present still. The same God who did great things in the past is with us today. He has placed his same spirit in us who believe today. And I believe that he wants to do great things in our generation, even through us. You know, the missionary William Carey, he had this great axiom. He said, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. And you know what's interesting? As Elisha takes up this mantle, God's actually going to do more and greater things through Elisha than he ever did through Elijah. Now, Elisha might not, not have ever believed that if you would have told him at the beginning of his ministry that God was actually going to do more and greater things through him than he ever did through the great man Elijah, Elisha probably wouldn't have believed it, but it was true. 
And guys, I just wonder, what might God do through us if we take that baton and run with it? Let's bring us to the end of this sentence. It says this, the God of Elijah was with Elisha, and he will be with us as we carry the baton of God's work in our generation and point people to Jesus. And maybe you say, hey, these are cool stories and stuff, but does God still speak to people? Does God still call people now the way that he called Elijah and Elisha? Do those kinds of ministries still exist? Well, let's take a look at Elisha's early ministry and what it was all about quickly here in these last 10 verses. Verse 15, I'm going to kind of summarize, so follow along with me in the text. In verse 15, here's what happens. Elisha leaves the river Jordan, and he goes back into the city of Jericho. If you ever get the chance to go to Israel, you'll notice the city of Jericho is very close to the river Jordan. It kind of sits up on a hill. Of course, the river's in a, in a lower part, so it's just down the street, really, from the river Jordan. And he goes back up to Jericho, and he returns to this place where there was a school of the prophets. Fifty young prophets are there, and they recognize when they see Elisha that the spirit of Elijah is with Elisha. But here's the other thing that happens. They are also very worried because they're from a distance. They had watched what had happened as these two had gone down to the river, and they had seen this tornado come, and apparently they had seen that this whirlwind picked up and carried Elijah's body away. And they're like, um, hey, so this is cool, right, that you took over for Elijah, but we need to go find his body because he just got picked up by like a windstorm and it probably threw his body like a couple miles over there. So we should form like a search and rescue thing and go find his body. Let's go find Elijah. And Elisha tells them, well, look, you guys can go do that if you want, but it's totally unnecessary because Elijah was taken up to heaven. You're not going to find his body. God took him. But they do it anyway. And of course, they don't find his body. We're going to talk about why that matters in a second. Verse 19, here's what happens next. The people of Jericho ask Elisha for help because their water supply has been tainted. It's gone bad. See, the water they had there in Jericho came from a natural spring. And apparently something had gone wrong with, the, with their water source. And it was making people sick. It was poisoning their crops. It, we even read there that people were dying and having miscarriages as a result. And so in verse 20, Elisha asks for a bowl and some salt. And he throws the salt into the spring, and it heals the waters. And so, whereas people before were dying from the water, now the water is giving life. And the final thing that happens in verse 23 is this. It says that Elisha went up from Jericho to Bethel. From Jericho to Bethel. If you have a map in your Bible, you'll notice this is actually really important that he goes from Jericho to Bethel. Here's why it's important. Because Jericho is in the southern kingdom of Judah. You remember Israel's divided at this time into the northern kingdom of Israel, southern kingdom of Judah. Now, in the southern kingdom of Judah, they still, for the most part, worshipped Yahweh. But the northern kingdom of Israel was wholly given over to the worst kinds of idolatry and pagan worship and the worship of the god Baal. Up in the north, they were hostile to the people of God. They were in the habit of killing the prophets of God. And so Elisha, he's been down in Jericho, but now he travels up again into the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, you remember that Elijah was a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel. Now that's important because what this means is that Elisha is picking up where Elijah left off. 
But again, the northern kingdom of Israel was a very hostile place for him to go. And Bethel in particular was especially hostile because Bethel was one of two locations that were centers or hubs for pagan worship in the northern kingdom of Israel. So look at what it says in verse 23, the second half. When he was going up on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him, saying, Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. I always hate reading that passage. It just makes me feel really uh, awkward and bad. But it says, but notice this, when it says uh, small boys in verse 23, I want you to understand that's a really bad translation of that word. Some of your other translations are going to translate that word as young men or youths. That's a better translation. I'll explain to you why. The Hebrew word that's translated there, uh, young boys, it's also used in other parts of the Bible. It's used to speak of Joseph when he was 39 years old. Okay, it's used to speak of Absalom when he was an adult. It's used to speak of Solomon when he was 20 years old. In other words, it's important that we understand this wasn't a group of five-year-olds, you know, taunting Elijah and making fun of him for being bald. This, this wasn't a group of fifth graders, right, making fun of him for having a bald head. These are a group of people in their late teens at minimum, early 20s perhaps, and they're mocking Elisha for being bald. But more importantly, they're saying, go up, go up. That's a reference to Elijah and how Elijah was taken up into heaven. So they're mocking Elijah, they're mocking Elisha, they're mocking the ministry. Now remember, this was a very hostile place to the people of God where he's at here in Bethel. Now listen, if any of you have ever been tempted to tease me about my hair, you need to read what happens next in verse 24. It says that Elisha turned around, and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord, and two she-bears came out of the woods and tore the 42, 42 of the boys. Now, you might read that, and you're like, wow, that's a bit harsh, right? Like, Elisha seems to be kind of uptight and insecure about his receding hairline. Like, he's a little sensitive, isn't he? Now, listen, there's a little bit more to it than that. I'm sure he was sensitive about his hair. How could you not be? But uh, there's more to it than that. First of all, remember, he's in Bethel. This is a hostile area. This is a place where the prophets of God are killed. Secondly, notice the number of boys who get mauled by the bears. 42, 42 young men get mauled by bears. Now listen, that's a lot of people. Now just think about this. If you're in a crowd of people and two bears come by just ripping people apart, what are you going to do? Are you going to stand there and wait in line? So when the bear is done mauling those other people, then you'll be waiting. Okay, now it's my turn. Please maul me also. Of course not. When the bear comes running through the crowd, you're going to disperse. You're going to run. And the fact that 42 of these boys were still uh, mauled by these bears tells us this must have been a very large crowd. And as these bears came through, they still, two bears had the opportunity to maul 42 people and injure them. Notice, it doesn't say that any of them died. But the, the purpose of this miracle was what? It was to break up a hostile mob that was threatening Elisha. And, and it was also to discourage the people of Bethel from messing with Elisha in the future. And may I say this, it's, it's also a warning to any of you kids who think it's funny to make fun of bald people. Just don't do it because God might teach you a lesson. That's important. Now, listen, let's bring this home. Maybe you look at these stories and you say, okay, cool stories, but why are these stories important? 
Well, on the one hand, they're important because these are things that actually happened. But on the other hand, it's important because you need to understand that these stories point beyond themselves to something greater, something true, something greater beyond themselves. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, after Jesus had risen from the grave and resurrected on Easter Sunday, we read that Jesus went and he met with his disciples and he taught them the greatest, most epic Bible study that's ever been taught in the history of the world. Here's what it says in Luke 24. He said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you when I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. What Jesus was showing them as he journeyed with them through the Old Testament, he was showing them that what the Old Testament is about, it's about him. It's about him, not just part of the Old Testament, not just certain passages. The entire Old Testament is about him. How is that so? Well, look at what Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 17. He says that everything that came before, everything in the Old Testament, they were but shadows, and the substance is in Christ. What that means is that the work of Elijah, the work of Elisha, it all served to point forward to Jesus. The book of Hebrews puts it this way in chapter 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Jesus is God's final word, his ultimate revelation of who he is and what his will is for your life. And everything that came before, it was for the purpose of pointing to him, pointing to Jesus. The miracles that God performed through these prophets, they all served to foreshadow and point to Jesus and what he would do and who he would be. Listen, just as Elisha healed the sick waters of Jericho, so too, when you and I, when we sin, when we pursue fulfillment apart from God, that is like drinking from poisoned wells. It's like drinking from poisoned wells. It will make us sick, and eventually it will destroy us, not just our bodies, but our souls as well. But Jesus came, the good news of the gospel. He came to give us the water of life, and he offers it freely to all those who thirst and who will receive it. He gives the pure, living water that saves us from death and gives us life everlasting. And he makes us, then, the salt of the earth that we can go into the world and bring healing in his name to a world that needs it. Just as Elijah was taken up in this whirlwind to heaven, so Jesus himself would be taken up into heaven. People would search for his body, but in vain. It was nowhere to be found. It wasn't there anymore. And just as Elisha gave, on the one hand, a blessing to the sick in Jericho who recognized their need for help, but he brought judgment upon the mob in Bethel, so too, when Jesus returns, he will bring blessing on those who acknowledge their spiritual sickness and receive his help, but he also bring judgment on those who are hostile to him and refuse his grace and mercy. Friends, this is the invitation of God to us today. Because Jesus took your place in judgment on the cross of Calvary, you can receive healing and living water. You can receive grace today.
And the call of God on your life, it is twofold. It's twofold. The, the, the first aspect of God's calling on your life is that you would receive his grace by trusting in and relying on what Jesus did for you on the cross. And the second aspect, once you've done that, is this, that you would respond to that call, take that baton of his mission, and run the race that he has set before you in this generation. Friends, may we be those who respond to both of these calls of God on our lives today. Amen? Lord, we thank you for your grace towards us. Lord, thank you that you heal the sick waters of our lives. Lord, the poisoned wells that we've been drinking from. Lord, you offer us instead living water in you, Jesus. Living water that gives life eternally. And Lord, we want to receive that. And Lord, I pray for anyone here today who hasn't yet responded to that first aspect of your call on their life, to give their life to you, Lord, to, to take your hand and walk with you. Lord, I pray that today would be the day when they trust in you, Jesus, and what you did for them on the cross, when they give you their life. Lord, and we think about that second aspect of the calling, to take hold of the baton of your mission in our generation. Lord, may we do that by your grace, by the power of your spirit. Lord, would you help us and empower us that we would take that baton and that we would run the race that is set out before us in this generation for your glory. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. 